Okay, so um, today is kind of a little, on a, I went on a little rabbit trail. And can y'all hear me okay? Because this thing feels weird. It's fine. Okay. Um, I went on the rabbit trail and I really didn't, it's not really about, not very much about Esther, but um, I started doing my homework and um, I didn't even have y'all look this word up this week, but the word king or kingdom or royal or crown or throne, um, when I started looking, that was, um, it's over 200 times in the book of Esther. A little short book, 200 times about king, royal, crown, throne. So it started making me think, maybe, maybe that that's just something God wants us to learn about, about his kingdom. And, um, and so that's where, that's where I got started. And it's, as it turns out, um, the kingdom of God is one of the major themes that runs throughout the entire Bible. And, um, and how we relate to his kingdom. In fact, God as king is probably the most prominent way that the Bible speaks about God. And so when we say that God is sovereign, we understand that there are things that he is sovereign over. He, he's sovereign over people and places and animals and plants and time. And all things are subject to him. He rules all. Psalm 93 says, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, and he has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are, from, you are everlasting. Um, so we know that he established. He, was, he, he never was. So he's, he never was not, is what I'm trying to say. From everlasting to everlasting. And then he decided to create man in his image. And this is a term that we call the Imago Dei. And he created us to represent him in kingly ways. We were sort of representatives to be kings like him, rule kingly. In fact, he says we were blessed to rule and subdue and fool the earth in all of his kingly, godly, good ways. Um, listen to what Genesis 1 says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of heaven, over livestock, over all the earth, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of him, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Hmm. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But sadly, man failed at this by sinning against his authority they meaning we didn't properly represent his goodness and his glory god created us to share in that goodness and glory but like spoiled spoiled children we took what wasn't ours so now and in, instead of expanding the borders of the garden which is what he wanted us to do we were exiled like a king, an earthly king who banishes his subject from his kingdom for not obeying, we were now banished from the garden for the same. We were now strangers in a foreign land. <clears throat> and it really was paradise lost, but not forever. And it was a land, they, he banished us, to, banished us to a land that he physically um, created, but we created 
a spiritual wasteland. It was all our own creation apart from God, and we tried to rule by our own selfish desires. The mandate to rule the earth and have families and to work was now cursed. The curse didn't abolish God's mandate to rule and subdue and fill, but no longer was this going to be easy. Now there would be resistance and pain and death. However, before creation, God had set his love on his people. And this sin had caused a rift and a separation. But man's sin could never thwart God's plan of being the benevolent king who would rule creation with his image bearers. And the whole of the Old Testament, all of history before Christ's incarnation, was a shadow and a picture of how God would ultimately redeem, redeem his people and set his kingdom aright. He was going to redeem his kingdom through a man, the seed of the sinner. Genesis 3.15, y'all know this verse. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And just as sin had entered the, the world through one man, Adam, thus making us all get guilty and deserving of death and separation from God, redemption would come through the second Adam, the God-man, Christ. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, consummation, this is how the story of the Bible is often depicted. But creation, fall, redemption, and con consummation of what? Of his kingdom. We know that God sovereignly rules his kingdom, the fall of Satan, the fall of man, redemption, restoration. They are all a part of his divine plan. And so in our study this year through Judges and Hosea, we see how the Israelites were on this awful cycle of sin and repentance, sort of repentance, restoration. And judges and kings were appointed to guide God's family and reflect God's plan for redemption. Most were downright awful, but even the few good kings failed at ruling <clears throat> God's promise of an everlasting kingdom. Even David, a man after God's own heart, failed. But there was a promise given. David was promised. No matter what, there would be a king from his line that would rule forever. But still, king after king failed after this. And again, it was a cycle of sin and judgment and crying to God but still no human king to set things aright so God sent the prophets to them and he told the pro he told the children of Israel the covenant children to repent of their evil ways and God promised them rest assured no matter what he would send a king he had promised it now, God has always used covenants as a means by which he's ruled his kingdom. We see in the Old Testament through his use of representatives, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. And with Abraham, God initiated a covenant for a special people to have for himself. And this um, sort of special people covenant continued on with Moses and David. And these shadows of this this kingly rule, this people for himself, covenant, uh, represent and culminate in the, in the covenant we have in Christ. And God tells us about this way, way before it happens in Jeremiah. Well, way before Jeremiah. But listen to this, the new covenant. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant they broke, even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make at the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So last week, Janine Jean, Jean, <laughs> Jean explained to us a little of the history of how these Israelites, now called Jews, ended up in Persia. Well, it seems that Mordecai and Esther, even though they had assimilated into this sort of Persian way of life, it seems like they may have remembered the promise of a king who would um, restore them to God permanently. And they knew Ahasuerus, I don't know if that's how you say it, but that's how I'm going to say it. They knew Ahasuerus was not that king. He could not be that king. Even if he had ruled justly and used his power rightly, which he didn't, he was not from David's tribe of Judah. He was not the king of promise. I'm not saying they ever thought that he was the king of promise. I'm just saying that he could not be the promised one for various reasons, not the least of which he did not have the lineage that God said the Messiah would have and got what God says he does. So here they were, they were these strangers in this foreign land, but they were there by God's providence. We will see in our further study of Esther how important the providence of God is, um, how his kingly ruling of all that happened and was going to happen, that was super important in carrying out his plan to provide a king from the tribe of Judah. And I wonder if when Mordecai refused to bow to Haman, if he might have been reconsidering where his loyalties should lie. Maybe they didn't really re belong with this kingdom. Maybe they belonged to a different kingdom. And so um, God's covenant children in the Old Testament were strangers in a foreign land. We too, as, as believers in Christ, are sojourners in a land that we were not made for. The Old Testament saints did have some knowledge of this, that they too were made of another world, that they desired a better country. Sometimes I hear people say that Old Testament people didn't really believe in heaven or an, an after, you know, they didn't have a good concept of that. I don't think that's true. A, David says that he will see his son again. And listen to what Hebrews 11 says. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Y'all know this chapter, but I'm going to read part of it. Um, now faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things visible. And then it goes on. By faith, by faith, by faith. Y'all know this. <clears throat> but listen to these last few verses in this chapter. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeting them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, 
they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They had a taste for something more. C.S. Lewis, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan, um, C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this, in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most, if I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. And Lewis continues, Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to, make, <clears throat> to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep enliven myself the desire for my, new, my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. And Paul tells us in Philippians 3 that our citizenship is in heaven. R.C. Sproul tells the story about a, <clears throat> a time that he and Vesta were in Hungary, and they were going to go to Romania, and they were going to go on a train. And they had been warned that the Romanian guards were not very friendly to Americans. And if you have ever been on a train in Europe, crossing from one country to the other, you have experienced this... It's kind of harrowing because these guards come on the, on the train and many times they have a machine gun strung, you know, slung across their shoulder and they're asking you for your passport and, they're, and they're, they're gruff. It's kind of scary. Anyway, on this train, one of these not-so-friendly border guards noticed that one of the women that they were traveling with had a paper bag on her lap and um, he pointed to the bag. What's in the bag? And they were all like, oh, gosh, oh, this is bad. Because in the bag was a Bible, and they thought they were done. But the guard picked up the Bible, and he flipped, and he turned to Philippians 3, and he looked at them, and he said, you know American, I know Romanian. And they are kind of like, okay, this is weird, what is, what's going on? And the, the Roman, but he said, our citizenship is heaven, in heaven. He's, he was a Christian, and he understood something about the kingdom of God. He understood that while we live here on earth, our true citizenship is in the kingdom of God. So the saints of the Old Testament and the saints of the New Testament and all of the saints since have this thing in common, Christ, and a desire for a better country. Jesus ushered in the promise of, a, of this kingdom at the incarnation. He coronated it. At his ascension, I, I'm going to clarify this because I'm trying to be really careful with my words. Um, some people would say he coronated it when he resurrected. Um, and some people say the ascension, I'm going to let you come. I don't know that it really matters to you, but I want to be careful with my words. Anyway, he coronated it at his ascension. His kingdom has come. 
but it is not fully consummated. He taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we do live in the tension of the already and the not yet. Just as the saints of old looked forward to the coming, to the promise of a king, we look forward to the day when all things will be made new. And listen to the beautiful language um, that John writes in Revelation. Um, it's, it's beautiful and gorgeous. Um, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I'm going to make a comment on this. I think it's interesting that there wasn't a sea. And um, if y'all know anything about that, the sea represented like danger and it was ominous they don't look at it like the same way we look at it as like oh let's go to the beach and enjoy the ocean to them it was dangerous it was the roaring waves and the depths of the sea it wasn't good so I think it's interesting that this language says that the sea was no more anyway he continues I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the, throne, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he that was seated on the throne said behold I am making all things new and he also said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true and he said to me it is done I am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end so what does the, all this talk of the kingdom really matter to us well it matters because it helps us understand how to live in this world how to conduct ourselves as citizens of a better country, not succumbing to the temptations of this world. It helps us to be courageous in the strength of Christ. I think we might need to rely on that courage in the coming time going with, with what's going on in the world. It helps us to appreciate the beauty of his creation while knowing it is just a taste of what to come. It helps us to love God better and to love our neighbor. It helps us to be generous and hospitable. It helps us to have a peace that passes all understanding. <clears throat> to understand that God, our King, rules with his good and sovereign hand. And to sing with joy the words of the great hymn, This is my Father's World. Y'all need to picture this tune in your mind because it's so beautiful and I can't sing, but I'm going to read the words to you. This is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest in me the thought of rocks and trees and skies and seas, his hand the wonders wrought. This is my father's world. The birds their carols raise, the morning light, the lily white, declare the maker's praise. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong oft seem, it seems oft so strong, 
God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Thomas Ken, um, who wrote the doxology, said of his friend Isaac Walton upon his death, of this just man let due praise be given. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. Living quorum Deo, before the face of God, to be fully in his presence, to rightly understand what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. May it be for all of us. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guide your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for this for your kingdom, and that we um, can acknowledge and that we understand that we were made for another place, um, a place where you would dwell with us always, and there was never, ever the separation from sin. We thank you for the gift of Christ and how he bore our sins on our Christ so that we may enjoy this fellowship with you. Um, we love you, Lord. Help us learn to love you more. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.